Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Esme Weijin Wang. Esme is the author of The Border of Paradise, a novel, named one of NPR's best books of 2016. And she is the recipient of the 2016 Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize for her forthcoming essay collection, The Collected Schizophrenias. She also runs the unexpectedshape.com, which provides resources for ambitious people living with limitations. In this episode, we discuss how limitations, including mental health struggles and chronic illness, affect Esme's creativity and her commitment to resilience. We also talk about writing residencies, up-leveling in your career, and why she once threw away an entire book draft after reading The Sound and the Fury. One of the real driving forces for me was challenging myself to write about the experience of mental illness in a way that I hadn't seen before and that felt true to me. to start with the idea of resilience by first just asking you whether you ever struggled with the idea of writing about your illness and about the experiences that you've had that that may be more painful to write about? Yeah, I did not write about, in particular, mental illness for a long time. I had been diagnosed with various forms of mental illness since I was in my teens and started exhibiting symptoms when I was about 11, but I did not write about it until about 2010, I would say. It was when I was hired for a full-time job, and I realized that if I didn't start publicly speaking and writing about mental illness, that then there was no ideal time for me to do it, and that I ought to do it before there was no more time left. What was that first entry into writing about it. Do you remember? I actually don't remember. I, I, it probably started with my blog, I would guess. And I think you, one thing that maybe listeners won't be familiar with is day-to-day kind of what the concept of re- resilience looks like for you in terms of what some of your symptoms are and what you're working against to kind of maintain productivity and positivity and resilience in the face of. I think you're sure. you have so two questions there. One is about the concept of resilience and the other one is about the challenges that a person might face or the limitations that a person might face that they would then need resilience to to face. Um, so in terms of the challenges that I am currently facing, a lot of them are physical due to chronic illness. They include fatigue, so having trouble with um, sitting up for longer periods of time or standing or walking. Um, Sometimes I spend pretty much all day in bed. There have been times when I've spent the majority of a month in bed or a couple of months. So there's fatigue. There's also different symptoms that are flu-like, such as having trouble regulating my temperature and having fevers and chills and things like that, dizziness. Um, In severe cases, having trouble breathing and swallowing, things like that that are linked to chronic illness. In terms of mental illness, there have been some pretty challenging times in my life dealing with severe depression and anxiety, and then later in my life, psychotic symptoms that lasted up to 10 months or so um, in one particular year, 2013. And so those are just a couple of the things that I've been facing and have had to face since they appeared in my life. I like the idea of resilience. And and I think also people would define resilience in different ways. There have been lots of books about resilience that, um, in particular that have been written lately. But I think of resilience as the the kind of inner strength that one has and can develop and strengthen to enable um, enable them or us to get through difficult times. So when you talk about your creative practice in the context of all of that, you know, does does your writing and does creativity in general is that a source of strength? Is it a user of strength as well as a source of strength? Sort of how does it serve or not serve? you in those in those periods? Well, writing is one of the most important things to me. And so in that sense, it does serve as a form of strength. 
I do have times when writing is extremely difficult because of cognitive issues or, you know, for a long time, I really struggled with not being able to sit at a laptop for long periods of time the way I used to. So it kind of goes both ways. I do derive strength from writing during one of the worst periods of mental illness in my life when I was experiencing this rare condition known as Guitar's delusion um, or the belief that I was dead. I remember lying in bed and tapping out on my phone the very beginning of a draft of an essay that was later published by The Toast called Perdition Days. And I remember the first line was something like, as I'm writing this, I am also dead or something like that. And I also have this saying, I have a couple of them, but one of the sayings that I I kind of cling to and that I spread a lot is write your way through the story. And in, in that case, writing my way through the story was how I made sense of it and how I created a narrative and how I was able to, to live through that period of time. And I feel that way a lot about the challenges that I'm still going through, especially with my physical health, um, regardless of whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Is it something of, you know, not, you kind of get to fully articulate to yourself how you feel about and how you process what's happening because the writing, because the act of writing helps you with that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, in a way, another thing that is related to that, I think, is I was just answering questions for another interview a couple of days ago, and the person had asked um, what some of my goals had been in writing The Border of Paradise, and one of Um, which was my first novel that came out in 2016. And one of the real driving forces for me in writing The Border of Paradise was challenging myself to write about the experience of mental illness, particularly psychosis, in a way that I hadn't seen before, and that felt true to me. So, for example, there's a scene where one of the main characters, David Nowak, is walking through the woods and he experiences a hallucination. And I felt that I had seen a lot of writing about hallucinations before that was very much, I don't know, like a beautiful mind-esque kind of, I saw this thing and then it wasn't there because I imagined it. And that's, in my experience, not how I've experienced hallucinations. So I really wanted to get down to a very granular description of how different psychiatric and psychological experiences happen. Um, And I can only speak for myself, really, and in this case, for my fictional characters. But I do feel happy about how that turned out with that book. And it's probably something I will return to with other fiction. Yeah. How else do you derive, you know, like, like what you just described, kind of like very literally taking moments, um, and, and working them into fiction or using them as inspiration to, to plumb something deeper? I think it also has to do with the way psychology works, not just with fiction that has to do with mental illness, but just psychology in general. I remember the first time I read Anna Karenina, I was so inspired by how Tolstoy conveys the kind of nitty gritty ways in which people think and make decisions. And I, I was it really... Um, was a kind of a pivotal moment in my reading life and in my writing life. Um, Perhaps more obviously, I write about mental illness in nonfiction, in essays in particular, and I have a book that I'm currently working on that will be coming out with Grey Wolf Press in 2018 called The Collected Schizophrenias. And in that book, I'm also trying to talk about mental illness, in this case, schizophrenia, in a lot of different ways. Um, But there is, again, that challenge of there is such a public perception of what schizophrenia is and not so much a more granular understanding of what the experience might be like. And so there is an essay in there right now. I don't know if it will make it to the final cut, but it um, it's called uh, Sensations. And in it, I try to describe the actual sensations physically and mentally of what it is like to experience a psychotic episode. How do you even kind of keep track of that experience? I mean, I mean, I know on one hand that probably seems like a really dumb question because you experience it so viscerally, but it, it also feels like something that could be quite hard for you outside of the moment 
to access? Yeah, so in in that case, there are, like in the, in the case of perdition days, I was writing about the experience as it was happening. So things like that do help, or looking at journals. Um, I have a fairly good memory when it comes to what it's like to experience various things. Uh, symptoms and phases and and such. Although there is something that I like to call phase blindness, where when I'm not experiencing, say, depression, I can't remember exactly what it was like, or I feel like I I don't remember what it was like to feel so terrible. And then to experience depression is very difficult to remember another phase, um, such as being able to remember what it was like to feel happy. And I've, I've seen this with friends before who tell me I've never been happy in my whole life. And I know that's not true, but I also know that their depression is clouding their, their memory and their way of understanding how their life has been. Um, in terms of, uh, how well I can remember things in order to write about them later, that's where, like I said, journaling and things like that help because there are periods of time, especially with say mania or psychosis where my memory has been blanked out. There are periods of time in my life that I don't remember. Um, and if not for the documentation that I do during those times, including photography, um, I think it would be much harder for me to, to be able to call back those experiences. On the flip side of that too, I wonder if you ever, or how you how you kind of recover from writing about these things that are, you know, and that in a sense, the writing is cathartic, but in another sense, the writing itself is sort of a mirror of the pain. And so how do you kind of, you know, like, I I wondered that as I was reading The Border of Paradise, if there were days where you were just like, I need to walk away, I need to like, go like, (laughs) yeah, I think that um, the word self care, or the phrase self care has been kind of bandied around a lot lately, especially with this current political situation. And there's also a lot of derision about the idea of self-care. But for me, that aspect of literally taking care of oneself is important. Um, I think, you know, just making sure that if I'm writing something very difficult, that I am going to also make sure I'm drinking a lot of water. I'm going to make sure that I get to you know, have a good conversation with a friend or read a book that has nothing to do with what I'm writing about. I do tend to experience things that I'm writing about in a very visceral way. There have been many times when I've become actually physically ill after writing a particularly difficult scene um, in fiction or, you know, recalling things in nonfiction. So, I think that's kind of the hazard of writing, though, um, and especially writing things that are particularly challenging or difficult. Can you talk a bit about writing around your illness in a practical sense? You know, what uh, I would imagine it puts a, a great import on the moments when you feel well enough to sit at the computer and get some work done. Yes, um, t- completely. And actually, right now, I'm putting together a small online course that is based off of a workshop I taught at the Get Bullish conference last year called Ask Kicking with Limitations. And in that course that I'm currently putting together, I really talk a lot about how I've come up with different workarounds when it comes to writing, which is one of the more important things in my life. So uh, for example, um, as you mentioned, sitting and typing at a laptop is difficult. So one way I might try to get quote unquote around that is to sit at the laptop for even a very short amount of time when I am feeling well. So that's a kind of obvious one. Another one is, um, because I spend a lot of time lying in bed and, uh, a laptop is harder to type on, um, when in the positions that allow my body to be most comfortable. I have written things just by tapping on my phone in the drafts app. So, um, it's not incredibly efficient, but I'm, I do peck away at the screen with one finger and, and write that way. And I have written a fair amount, um, including published essays using that method. So yeah, there are certain workarounds that I have had to explore and find, and there 
um, there is a precedent to that, you know. So I had have recently been researching about Frida Kahlo. Um, I was working on a project um, regarding or related to Frida Kahlo, and it really moved me to see all of the photographs of her and the easel that. Um, had been designed for her to be able to paint in bed. That was something that I really related to on a very visceral level. And I, I just loved the idea of, of caring so much about something and one's creativity and one's work that, that um, you would want to find a way to do it no matter what. I imagine that everything you're describing for me would come with a, probably a quite hard-learned lesson about being patient with myself. Is that something that you've dealt with? Oh, completely. Um, you know, I started getting physically sick in 2011, and so it's been about six or so years. It has been hard. I work with a, a therapist who specializes in working with women with chronic illness. So that's actually helped a lot. There's something very specific about having to hit one's limitations over and over again. That's very upsetting. I also find that productivity anxiety is a very real problem for me, um, as it is for many people. Um, but in particular, living with a chronic illness and forms of disability make it really challenging. Um, and, you know, I wrote a piece for Elle magazine called, I think, something like I'm chronically ill and afraid of being lazy. And that was something that received a lot of feedback. Um, it turns out I'm not the only person with a disabling chronic illness who's afraid of being lazy. Um, because you are so limited in so many ways. And when you're dealing with chronic illness especially one that really takes a lot out of you and enables you to do much less than you used to be able to. Um, there is a real worry that that laziness is actually the underlying cause of all of that. I'm not, I'm not actually uh, lying in bed all day because I'm sick. It's actually because I'm lazy. And that's something that, you know, in addition to needing to learn patience has been a big hurdle for me. Right. Just the, the guilt or the perceived guilt that. Yeah. That I have. feel like in some cases, people who don't have chronic illness, look at people with chronic illness and think, well, why can't you just overcome that? Um, it, you know, why you look fine? What's wrong with you? Why can't you do such and such? Um, it's not that big a deal to come out to dinner um, and, and just sit for an hour, but you know, it is, it actually really is. And so, uh, it's both internalized stigma and the stigma that comes from outside that really impacts that in my opinion. And, you know, I was talking with another writer yesterday and we were talking about her writing routine and she said that, you know, when she works on her fiction, she does it for like two or three hours in the morning and that kind of maxes her out. And I think that's really common, you know, that it's just, like it, it is inherently a very difficult, um, very depleting sort of sort of job. And then to to work in this context, um, you seem, I mean, phenomenally productive. I don't know if you would agree with that, but it seems like you're, you're really, um, pushing a lot of stuff out. Mm, no, I, I, well, I mean, that's very kind of you. I don't feel productive. Um, I always feel like I, I could be doing more. And there's this version of myself that I imagine who's completely healthy and who is producing so much. And, especially with social media and looking at some of my peers and seeing what they're producing and putting out all the time. I just think to myself, if only I could, if I only I could be at that level, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, you were saying you were speaking to a fiction writer who, um, as far as I could tell from what you just said, does not have any kind of disabling chronic illness. And so, you know, for me, um, two to three hours is a really joyous amount of time to be able to spend on fiction. But, it's also nice to hear that, yeah, people who aren't sick also have limits. Um, their limits just might be a little bit different. 
Well, let's talk a bit about the collected schizophrenias. Um, I'm really interested in, in as much as you can talk about it now as a work in progress, you know, what it, what it's kind of shaping up to look like, but also if you could just talk about, uh, submitting it to the Grey Wolf Prize and, and that whole experience, you know, did you have to submit a full manuscript? What, what made you decide to apply for that? Yeah, so yeah, the Grey so Wolf Nonfiction Prize is uh, a really excellent prize that's resulted in a lot of great books. Uh, Leslie Jameson's em- The Empathy Exams is one that came out of that, and Ulibis's Notes from No Man's Land. Um, so I had been talking with my agent at the time about trying to put an essay collection out there, um, and we had been talking about it, I think, she disagreed. Um, she, she wasn't particularly interested in the collection, um, and really wanted me to go in a different direction. So by the time I submitted a partial manuscript to the Great Wolf Nonfiction Prize, and that's what they were asking for. They asked for at least a hundred pages as well as a project proposal and, and things like that. Um, by the time I submitted in January of 2016, um, that was pretty much my last gasp for the collected schizophrenias. Um, I don't know if I would have kept trying or if, you know, if it would have gone anywhere, if there had been any, were going to be any options for this book. And then, so time, time went by and my novel came out in April and there was a lot of book promotion going on around that. And then in June, I very unexpectedly received a call from uh, Steve Woodward, who is now my editor at Grey Wolf, and he told me that I'd won. And so that book now has a life, and I'm, I'm working on it, and it's going to be coming out in 2018. So how are you structuring the book? I just turned in um, the work in progress, which is about 42,000 words at this point, to my editor a little less than a week ago. And Right now, uh, I do have like a table of contents and a list of essays. And um, I think the structure is is not quite, um, it's formed, but in not in a particularly obvious way. There's uh, an arc to it that I see and that I think will come across when reading it. But it's hard for me to really describe, especially right now when the book is in such a nascent form. But a lot of the essays have already been published, which is why right now it's important for me to write new stuff. So um, right now, they, there's a set number of essays that we know that we know have been published other places, and they probably will get a makeover. They will get makeovers of some kind, but they're at least written. And right now we're kind of pushing forward with these new essays that have not seen the light of day anymore. What is your goal with the collection in terms of, you know, what you hope readers who maybe don't have experience with the area, kind of what they come away understanding? I hope that, um, well, actually, I was just talking about this over, I think, either lunch or dinner yesterday with some friends where I feel like because there are so few literary works about schizophrenia, especially nonfiction, there's, you know, Ellen Sachs's uh, The Center Cannot Hold, which is a memoir. Um, but other than that, there aren't that many. And so I do feel a kind of pressure to represent this population in a way that makes me uncomfortable. I know I have a sense that when the book comes out, I'm going to be kind of approached or seen as this expert on schizophrenia, especially since the book is not just personal essays. It's also, you know, researched and there's reporting and journalism and sociocultural analysis and historical analysis and all kinds of things. So I'm a little bit worried about being seen as some kind of expert when it comes to schizophrenia or like I'm speaking for this very large and diverse population. On the other hand, I am glad that I get to to speak as um, someone with schizoaffective disorder, as someone who has something related to schizophrenia. I'm glad that I'll be able to talk about some things that maybe people haven't thought about, about how people look at schizophrenia as a form of possession or about um, the idea of being high functioning when you have a severe mental illness, like what does that mean? Um, taking a look at hospitalization, at involuntary hospitalization, at 
the experience of being hospitalized. So there are a lot of things that I'm going to be writing about that I haven't seen written about elsewhere. And I, I do hope that people who do have some kind of severe mental illness will come away from the book feeling understood and feeling happy with the portrayal. And I hope that people who have no experience with severe mental illness also come away with a little bit more of an understanding of what this kind of quote unquote scary amorphous mental illness is like. What are some things that you've learned about your own experience with mental illness through the writing process? Um, So I think I could say that I've figured something out or learned something in pretty much every essay in the collection or yes, in every essay in the collection. Um, The most recent one that I've been working on is one called Beyond the Hedge. And it has to do with um, kind of going into different forms of spiritual practice and looking at mental illness in, in religion and the ways in which mysticism and mental illness, particularly psychosis might overlap. And so that's a, that's a big essay that I'm, I'm, I just finished a draft of and I'm working on. But one thing that I kind of came away from that essay with a new understanding of was how much I looked to the sacred arts and spiritual practice as a way to have something to do in the face of just not knowing what to do in the face of these scary amorphous things like, you know, like death or, you know, illness, things that we can't really control. It's really helpful for me at least to have something physical and concrete to do, whether that's lighting a candle or going to Our Lady of Guadalupe's um, shrine and leaving a petition. There are, there's a reason that rituals are important in religion and spiritual practice. And I think one of them is that in the face of scary, amorphous things, um, we, we want something to be able to do that's concrete. Were you raised religious? No, not at all. Um, my husband is Catholic. Um, and before we got married and we were trying to decide whether to have a Catholic ceremony, I spent about a year doing a really deep dive on Catholicism. I read tons of books. Um, I went to mass every Sunday. I just really, really seriously considered, um, converting. And I also think Catholicism is aesthetically very, it's very, very um, dramatic. Yeah. yeah. It's very dramatic and very appealing to me in that kind of way. And there's the, the Latin and it's very, I don't know, this might be kind of blasphemous, but it's kind of glamorous in a way. Um, and so, yeah, I, I have considered things before, but, um, I was definitely not raised religious in any sense. I, I might even say my dad was probably more atheistic and my mom was more agnostic and we were probably culturally Buddhist, but, but not, but not Buddhist in any real sense. Let's shift a little bit to the border of paradise, which is your debut novel. Um, and is complicated and gorgeous. And I have a lot of questions about just like the mechanics of putting all of it together. But uh, do you want to start by talking about just how that idea began for you? You know, you mentioned that you were in the MFA program at the University of Michigan. Did you go into the program with this project? Oh, no, not at all. Um, I really started working on it the summer between my first and second years at Michigan. And the germ of the book was actually a comment a friend of mine had made years prior, which was that she thought the most romantic thing possible would be if a brother and sister were in love with one another, which um, stuck with me. And so the beginning of the book was actually about 100 pages. It was my thesis um, at Michigan. And it's the section that's now called The Arrangement, um, narrated by William. And at the time, I thought that William would be narrating the entire book. When I was done with the thesis and done with that section, I realized that there was no way anybody would want to read an entire book narrated by William. I certainly wouldn't want to. Um, And there were also questions that readers had, you know, professors and such saying, 
you know, we want to know more about the parents. How did the parents wind up in this situation? And I realized uh, that 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 was a question I would want to address. And so then I kind of worked backward and then I started with David in the forties with a very different life. And so that's why it opens with, with David in mid-century America and this piano factory and his, you know, Polish American family and all this stuff that's very far away from William and his isolated life in Northern California. And then, so I kind of worked my way forward up to William. And then there was a lot of bouncing around. I'm not, um, I'm not a person who really plans novels or outline fiction in particular. And so in writing the book, there were so many dead ends. There was, there were hundreds of pages that were tossed because they ended up being about things that did not make it to the final, the final book. Like, plot lines about cults and, and, uh, and just like all kinds of things. So is it easy for you to, to toss something when it needs to be tossed or do you Uh, kind of? Well, uh, to sort of answer that question, I had been working on my first novel for, um, maybe three years and it was about 270 pages. It was, it was gotten quite substantial and I had worked with a mentor on it at Stanford and it was this big project and I cared a lot about it. And then one day I read the sound and the fury for the first time, um, the whole book in one day. And I read the whole thing and I just tossed my entire novel that the same day I was like this book, I like, I hadn't realized, but my, I can be a lot more ambitious. And so that's when I, yeah. So to answer your question, uh, yeah, I, I can be pretty ruthless. That's fascinating. And so it wasn't necessarily that you saw any sort of overlap between The Sound and the Fury and your project. You were just like, oh, I've been like way too, like I fenced myself in way too much here. Well, I was more like I'm playing in a sandbox here and they're here. This person is like Michelangelo chipping away at David. Like this is like a whole different ballgame and I need to try to aim more in that direction. (laughs) (laughs) Is that, was that contributing to your decision to go after an MFA? Um, Sort of. Yeah. Like part of the whole narrative of just wanting to take my writing more seriously. There was at the time when I was working on the first novel, the one that I tossed, I was still working as a lab manager at Stanford and still doing research. I was doing fMRI imaging, brain scan studies, uh, all kinds of clinical research. And, um, I was planning on going for a PhD in clinical psychology afterward. And so it took a couple of years, but I, I did decide that I was going to take this different path. And I remember having to go and meet with my, um, with my boss and essentially tell him like, I'm sorry, but I'm leaving psychology research. (laughs) I'm leaving research and I'm, I'm going to go get my MFA and become a writer. So what made you choose, um, Michigan? It was the only MFA program I applied to that, uh, accepted me that, that, that like I actually wanted to go to, like I applied, I had applied to a bunch of safeties, um, in addition and the safeties accepted me, but Michigan was the only like, you know, more high caliber school that accepted me. All my friends, almost all my friends went to Iowa. Um, but, uh, I, I was turned down. So <laughs> I went to Michigan instead. And so you started working on the border of paradise there. Um, and do you kind of feel like that process for you was, you know, making the journey only seeing three inches in front of your face the whole way, or do you kind of zoom in and out at different points? And did you kind of, um, start to maybe get a larger sense of where things were going? I think definitely more in the 50 to 60% part of the journey, there was a lot of, you know, only seeing three inches in front of my face. By the time I was reaching the final third um, of the book, I needed to zoom out to, in order to not just like write a complete mess. Um, that just like went on forever, you mean? Yeah, that just like got, went on forever and like had no shape whatsoever. Um you know, there, there was a certain point where I decided like, oh, the structure is going to be, uh, two, two people, like a couple will form, uh, each part of the book. So you have David and Daisy, uh, in this first part and then William and Jillian, the second part, and then, uh, Marty and Marianne in the third part. And then there's this, the final part, which is an omniscient, uh, point of view. But yeah, so there was a 
point where I needed to make those decisions and say like, okay, here's the structure. And like, this is where, this is the container that's going to hold this story. But for a very long time, um, there was no container. I was just kind of writing and seeing where it went. Um, and I, I, I don't really know at this point, um, I, I'm very excited to work on a new novel. I'm, I'm liking working on this essay collection, but I really miss fiction. I actually um, spent a good amount of time working on a short story that will be coming out this year. But um, I, I'm not sure if for my next novel, if I'll do the same amount of just like wandering around in the fog. Um, it's certainly not efficient, but it, it might be my way of doing things. So who knows? Yeah, I always struggle with that as well, because in every other aspect of my life, I am all about efficiency. And it really stresses me out how inefficient, but I think it just is, you know, and you just kind of have to throw your hands up at it and like, accept that you needed like the 800 awful words before you got the like 100 that like turned you on to where you were actually supposed to be going. Um, but it, but it always stresses me out. <laughs> and I do think there are people who outline very carefully and who, who like really hew to that um, very closely. I'm just not one of those people. And maybe those people just have like a really great time uh, doing it that way. But to me, it would, it would feel a little bit like, like a paint by numbers, except the paint by numbers was created by myself and I'm just painting in my own numbers. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, you know, to each their own. What was your relationship like with those characters as you were writing? Um, it seems like you could have some, some pretty difficult moments um, inside the hearts and minds of all of them at certain points. Oh my gosh. I, I love those characters and know those characters. So I love them so much and I know them so well. I would have dreams from the points of view of different characters. Um, would those make it into the book? Like, would they actually inform the story? No, not really. It was more the, the feeling of being that person. And I think it was especially important for me to get to know the characters really well and to have the, the almost like visceral sensation of being those people because there are eight voices in the book and they're all for, like almost all of them are first person. So um, I really needed to have a distinct voice for David as opposed to Daisy, as opposed to William, as opposed to Jillian. Like they're, they're all different. And I think, I think they do feel different, um, and, and contribute to the understanding of their characters. So yeah, I, I love those characters. And then sometimes I even think about writing a book that has a few of those characters, my next novel being a book that has a few of those characters in it, but who knows? Were those characters distinct voices there from the beginning? Or, I mean, you know, did you did you just kind of hear, hear a line in your head and were like, right, that's David? Or did you have to sort of chisel away to, to find them? Um, probably more the former, although it's hard for me to remember at this point. Um, I, I think I just kind of tried on different voices for different characters and, and, and did not have to really, it wasn't like, you know, here's William, I'm going to try on like five William voices and see which one works. Like it was more like, let's feel our way in the dark for what William sounds like. And then that's what William sounds like. Um, when it came to later edits and like really getting down to the nitty gritty of editing, I would do more careful, like have more careful looks at the different ways, um, that the different narratives spoke. Like I would check to make sure that like, you know, this person doesn't use contractions or like this person, um, there's a word, uh, in both, uh, David's narration and his children's narration that is always incorrectly used. And I, and I, I chose that word on purpose to be a word that only exists incorrectly in their little world. Do you remember what you did, um, on the day it was finished? I do remember the day I finished uh, my first draft, I was at a residency and word had gotten around that I had finished my first draft that morning before going to breakfast. And a couple of people that I was acquainted with um, got out like a like a slice of pie, I think, and a candle and everybody sang like a congratulated. I think it was like happy birthday to my book or something. They just sang a song and like had me blow out the candle. And that was, that was extremely kind. What do you get out of residencies? 
I really like just being in a different place and knowing that focusing on my work is the number one priority. I really like um, solitude. I really enjoy feeling like yeah, I don't know. I think it's like the idea that you're in this completely separate space and the space has been just has been designed designed just for you to work and um and so I feel like I get a lot done at residencies. Um I love the different experiences I've had um in terms of, you know, some residencies have like really great food or, you know, are really have really beautiful lodging or or whatnot. And I also really love residencies that also have different forms of art. So I love looking and spending time, looking at and spending time with um, the art of visual artists, or um, I haven't, I don't think I've spent time with composers, but I hope to do that sometime um, at some other residency. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's really, uh, in general, um, have been really good experiences. I also find um, the process of applying for things very helpful, uh, just kind of for my own understanding of my own work. I don't know if you have that experience or have had that experience, but like having to write like artist statements and things like that have at times you really crystallized for me. Like, cause I think it can be really difficult to pinpoint like, and you, you have some courses on your website that I would love to talk about too, that, that dig into this, but just like, what do I care about? Like, what are, you know, you have, I think obsessions and themes is, is how you phrase it. Um, yeah. but I think like, that's something that seems like it should be so obvious for us to understand about ourselves, but often is very opaque. Yeah. And, and even just for like on a really practical level, like when I was applying for the Grove Nonfiction Prize, I had to write a thing saying what this book was about. And if, you know, if I hadn't been forced to do that for that application, I don't know what I would have done. And, you know, I'm even, who knows if the NEA will exist anymore after this year, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I get, I'm applying for an NEA grant for the first time this year. And so I know I'm going to have to write some kind of proposal. That's not this current essay collection, because by the time, if I did get the grant, um, if I, uh, the money wouldn't come until next year. And that's, uh, when my book would have already been turned into gray wolf. So I'm, it's forcing me to think about like, okay, what is my next novel going to be? And, um, and you know, how am I going to talk about it? Do you feel like you've arrived at a point in your career where that sort of stuff is more within your reach than you felt before? I mean, like, you know, the auto and, and NEA, those are both like really prestigious opportunities. You know, do you feel like you've kind of like, I don't know, grown in, in a in a specific way, I guess, toward a, a bigger, I don't want to, I'm trying to say everything I'm thinking of saying sounds so, um, superficial and I don't mean it like oh do you feel more famous now or something like that but like do you feel like oh like I'm I'm like making this work I'm like doing well at this yeah I I think the word I personally use is like up leveled I do feel like I have up leveled like for many 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 years I would apply to things and I would always get these nice rejection letters and that was uh like a phase that I had to go through it's not it's not that I don't get rejections now, but I, I feel like I've gotten to a point where I feel like certain things are more within my reach than they used to be. You know, publications approach me now. Um, I have, you know, people will approach me for our anthologies and projects and things. And that wasn't something that happened before. Um, there's, there are things coming down the pipe that are really exciting. Um, yeah, so I do feel like I've um, up-leveled in a way, um, and hopefully I'll be able to continue having a, having a robust career in writing. So let's talk about your actual kind of day-to-day writing life, which I know is, is heavily dependent on how you're feeling. Uh, but I wonder if you could talk a bit about your routine, you know, your preferences on a, an ideal day. Are you writing at home? Do you like to go to cafes, that kind of stuff? Yeah, so uh, I do have a fairly um, strict routine when I wake up. I tend to wake up really early, usually around 4 a.m., and that's left over from when I had the full-time job, and I would get up that early to work on my book before going to work. Um, There's a lot of, like, 
journaling and pulling tarot cards and morning prayers and um, morning prayers of gratitude and and things like that. And then uh, depending on how I'm feeling, I will try to write for as long as I can. Um, and those are always good days. Um, if I if I've been able to if I'm able to get some writing done. The whole day just feels so much better to me. Um, but yeah, uh, in terms of like the nitty gritty of how my writing gets done, um, I have uh, one of the, the like slim MacBooks right now, which is nice because it's less heavy and that's easier for me um, when I'm not feeling particularly physically strong. Um, and uh, I do have like weird things like I want I'm very aesthetically driven. So for example, I have hundreds of wallpaper, desktop wallpapers saved to my computer. And in the morning, I need to pick the exact right desktop wallpaper for that day. It has to feel just like aesthetically correct. Um, it has to match my mood and like what I want the day to feel like and, and, and all those things. And so there's that kind of decision making about the desktop wallpaper, and then what is today's desktop wallpaper? Um, it uh, is a graphic that says "Gold Digger" on it. <laughs> um, but I, I tried like maybe four or five before that one um, this morning before deciding on that one. Um, yeah, so it, it I do not understand. I have a friend who's had the same desktop wallpaper since she was in college, and I just like. I, boggles my mind. I could not, I could not. Um, and you know, when it comes to, uh, the actual writing, there are definitely things I prefer. Like sometimes if I'm feeling stuck, I'll change the font because that helps me kind of shake things loose. Um, I, I really prefer to write in single space. I really cannot write double spaced. Um, so I'll I don't like writing in double space either. Yeah. 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 Like I only put things in double space once it's time to send it to someone. Um, but yeah, they're just like little things like that. I, I don't, I used to really listen to music while I was writing and now that's not quite as much of a thing, but yeah, those are, those are a couple of my little quirky writing things. Do you, uh, do you work with Jessica Crispin's creative tarot book at all? Um, I do own it and I've had many readings from Jessa and I think she's brilliant. Um, I have used her creative tarot book, um, in, I've tried some of the spreads while working on this essay collection. That's cool. I um I haven't. That was my first introduction to tarot cards, so I I've still only been just like pulling a card a day and like reading her piece about that card, and then just kind of like thinking on that. I haven't tried any spreads yet, but um, it's just it's a really nice like framing device. For it day. is. It is. Um, and I I think Jessa was really smart to kind of put those two things together, creativity and how tarot can help with that. I find it interesting that that was your introduction to tarot because it's, um, it's, uh, her, her definitions of what different cards mean is, are very, um, very slanted towards her goal in the book, which is about creativity and looking at creative projects. So they're not necessarily that close to the definitions that you might find in a different little white book, but yeah they're very useful for creative projects. Looking through your website, I was really struck by how well you've like established your business as a writer, um, beyond just kind of what you normally think the, the end product of a, being a writer is of just producing words. You know, you have these courses and, um, you've kind of created all of these really interesting tools. And, and I wonder if you would be willing to talk a little bit about how you approach the business side of your writing life, how you kind of monetize your creativity in a, in a dirty way. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really interesting. I've actually been talking to a lot of people about this lately um, because writing, uh, writing, as you know, is not a particularly lucrative career. So after I left my full-time job due to illness, I realized I was going to have to figure out something else and preferably something that I felt strongly about and passionately about and that I would also be able to do from home and use my own resources and things. So I, I ended up deciding to start this online business. And so it's kind of grown very organically since about 2013 or 14, really more 2014. 
um, there, there used to be more services. So I used to do, um, a lot of editing and book proposal coaching, but I've kind of taken those down from the site. They're not as, um, they're not really things I'm doing right now. There are digital product products, as you've said. And I think the hardest part for me right now is trying to get people to understand that I do both of these things. So I'm, I'm a literary writer, but I also have this online business and will you please look at both of these things? Um, you know, especially I've been trying to figure out, you know, all my social media profiles, like I, I might put as on on the place where you're in the place where you're supposed to put your website. But I think most people will see an author and say, Oh, well, that's where I would go if I wanted to like find links to her clips or, you know, something about her book. And they wouldn't necessarily expect to go to my site and find like a shop where they can actually buy things and where I want them to buy things. So that's, that's been something that I've been talking with other writers slash small business owners about. And, uh, yeah, it, it's something that I'm still kind of grappling with, but it's, it's, it's an interesting challenge. Yeah. I, I have that as well for like, you know, I'll do some like work that I put under the umbrella of, of consulting of like, you know, branded content stuff. Um, and I never know, like, should that be its own website? How do I advertise that? It always feels a little, like you said, um, like you're kind of trying to straddle in the middle. And so nobody really understands either side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very true. Um, I've gotten different kind of forms of advice lately. So I've been thinking about like, well, maybe I could like have a completely separate domain and, and do it that way. But there's also the thought of like, well, I am, I am one person and I'm doing all of these things. And so maybe it, it makes sense to have them all under one umbrella. So we'll see. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our website, wmfapodcast.com. You can email us at hello at wmfapodcast.com and find us on Twitter and Instagram at wmfapodcast. Download and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Reviews are greatly appreciated. Or visit our website for more options. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC.